the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. W.H. Weiscarver, a recent guest on the show, has pledged 50% of the proceeds from his book Twilight of Empire from sales between October 1st and October 31st to support the Tom Sumner program. W.H. Weiscarver, a former National Security Advisor and counsel for the U.S. Senate Armed Services Committee, pulls no punches, fusing history with political intrigue in Twilight of Empire, the third of four planned novels in the Resurrection Saga series. W.H. Carver's book, Twilight of Empire, shows that the U.S. has all the wealth, science, and resources to solve every issue we face today. Twilight of Empire by W.H. Carver is available on Amazon and Apple Books. For more information and to support the Tom Sumner program, visit whyscarver.com. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. I'm a dreamer
And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is uh, author of uh, Writing the Sacred, a Psalm-inspired path to uh, appreciating and writing sacred poetry. He's also an accredited uh, Christian youth educator, but he's uh, got a new book that's um, a little different for him, I think. And uh, we're going to talk to... um, Ray McGinnis, the author of Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. And Ray joins me by phone. Hi, Ray. Welcome to the show. Oh, great to be speaking with you, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing just fine, thanks. Now, it was just a month ago that we uh, commemorated the 20th anniversary of the September 11th uh, attack that... um, brought down the the twin towers uh, of the World Trade Center in New York and um and of course we know about Pennsylvania and the, the Pentagon as well as part of that coordinated attack and leading up to that 20th anniversary uh survivors and survivors families um, called on the president to release information about that event and some information was released. Did any of that new, was any of the information that was released new information? Did it answer any of the questions that you raise in your book? Uh, no. Now, part of what, what uh, the president did was he said, we're going to release some things. We're going to look at the at, at, at the documents that we're, we would consider to release, and we're going to make some decisions about what to release. Uh, I think quite a bit of that has yet to come out. But, uh, you know, the family, certainly one of the questions that the families had was about, uh, about 28 pages of, you know, classified, uh, redacted, you know, blacked-out information regarding Saudi Arabia, and and certainly there were what nearly 1,800 families that petitioned the president and said if you, unless you do something regarding uh, classified information regarding Saudi Arabia we're not going to be happy if you uh, show up at a September 11th uh, memorial service. Well, he did release, uh, you know, so, so promise release, but also promised to release more information. Uh, and the families, you know, have been I think quite startled over the numbers of administrations uh, when um, this resistance to releasing any information. I think it was in April 2020 that uh, Attorney General William Barr was speaking before a judge explaining that the families uh, September 11th who'd been wanting more information released about Saudi Arabia, uh, he said that we cannot release any information because it would harm uh, State secrets and, and uh, national security, and so I think it'll. I've talked to some families more recently. They've said that they're hopeful. I mean that that what what is uh, to be released will shine a light on on uh, the question of Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi complicity, uh, but uh, the jury's still out with that. Well, and for people who don't know and don't realize it, um, there is reason to at least have uh, 
Saudi Arabia explain why 15 of the 19, I think it's 15 of the 19 hijackers that day, were in fact Saudi nationals. That's true. And and there are you know questions about decisions that were made. Uh, the um, Michael Springman was with the uh, State Department, the U.S. Embassy in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, and he was one of the people that you know wanted to testify before the 9/11 Commission. I don't. I think right now he didn't do that, but families did want him to testify because he said that. Uh, the State Department, uh, with the the U.S. Embassy, wanted uh, to uh, you know really hold back numbers of people who were applying for visas, including the 15 alleged hijackers from Saudi Arabia, and and they're filling out the applications in this way. What year were you born? One of them filled out the application 1878. Uh, others, where will you be staying? Uh, no answer. Uh, what will you be studying or working? No answer. And most of us, if we went to some country that requires a, a visa application and we filled it out very partially or hardly at all, we wouldn't get to go to that other foreign nation. And yet you had uh, interventions from uh, agents with the Central Intelligence Agency overriding objections of U.S. embassy officials in Saudi Arabia and fast-tracking the visa applications, and then they ended up in, in America. So for the families, it's just, uh, they just want some, you know, it's not good enough. You know, people falling down their jobs or do, making the wrong calls, decisions. It just seems uh, a, lot of, a lot of explaining needed to be done, and, and the 9-11 Commission, when it did its investigation, left a lot of, of rocks unturned or stones unturned. And in fact, it seems like uh, from accounts in your book, from all accounts really, that there was a concerted effort to shield Saudi Arabia from from any from answering to anyone about anything related to those Saudi nationals uh, alleged to be part of the the attack. That that's the families, you know. That I mean the. The 12 members of the family steering committee who had a front row seat, who all lost loved ones, who uh, had formal relationship with staff from the 9-11 Commission assigned to relate to them, and the families on the family steering committee were in touch by either phone or in person or by email uh, with either 9-11 commissioners or 9-11 Commission staff on a daily basis for over a year and a half to 20 months. Uh, and and so these people, you know, when they gave their questions to the 9-11 commissioners, uh, the commissioners told the press in March of 2003 that these questions, these hundreds of hundreds of questions would be, quote, a roadmap for how to do the investigation. And then at the end of it all, they only answered 9% of the questions. And, and for the families watching, they expected that there would be a, a focus at some point on Saudi Arabia. And instead, very early on, they hadn't said, uh, for the public hearing, several people coming to testify before the 9-11 Commission uh, talking about Iraqi complicity. And Lori Van Auken uh, went up to uh, Philip Zelico, the executive director, and, and accused him of, of orchestrating the, the commission to sort of give a sales pitch for the Iraq war, which 
and late March was just 10 days in. And so, uh, you know, the, the families were, were, were just quite surprised at the focus on Iraq as opposed to Saudi Arabia. Do the families that you've talked to and, and interviewed uh, for this book, do they think that the, the shielding of, of Saudi Arabia from any investigation into the events of uh, 9-11 is strictly about oil? Hmm. Uh I mean, did, did any of the families yeah. comment or speculate about why they think they don't get answers about Saudi Arabia? Yeah, there, yeah, I, there sometimes are, are, uh, are, are comments like that. Others um, uh, would comment perhaps on uh, arrangements for, you know, here's Saudi Arabia and we have, say, you know, arrangements for, uh, defense contractors to sell them weapons. I mean, th- there's a variety of things that they that they might that they comment on. Uh, but it seems that there's this long-standing close relationship between Saudi Arabia and and America, and so uh, there are seemingly vested interests in wanting to keep that uh, relationship solid and shielded from any scrutiny. And it's, uh, it surprises the families. I mean, there's other families that have questions about possibly Pakistani involvement. So, you know, uh, you know, the whole way the investigation for the 9-11 Commission went, you know, you have um, Philip Zellico, the executive director, uh, receiving numerous phone calls from senior White House counsel Carl Rove. Uh, and for some of the family members that were close to the investigation and some of the 9-11 Commission staff themselves, it seemed that there was more concern that whatever the investigation went, that it would, that its report would find nothing that would damage uh, or embarrass the sitting president and his re-election chances in 2004. And for some of the families, they just felt that was just not a proper focus and shouldn't be the consideration. They should just you know, go and find whatever the evidence is and, and, you know, make their determination that way. More unanswered questions about 9-11 with author Ray McGinnis, straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others.
For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. Hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. My guest is Ray McGinnis. He is the author of a book called Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. Ray, what... Uh what started you down the path of, of exploring, researching, and putting together this book? Well, I, you know, I mean, initially, I mean, I, I was in Joshua Tree National Park in southeastern California on September 11th in a setting uh, off the grid, uh, no, no radios, no TV. Uh, uh, there were 60 people with me, Americans from 30 states. And uh, two of the people there uh, had a financial advisor who managed their stock portfolio, who, who was working in one of the tin, Twin Towers, and they were worried that he might have been killed. He did live, but that was, you know, very scary for them. And, and I felt it all around the room. I couldn't leave the, the country for five days because no planes could fly. 
and so, uh, you know, I mean, I went on with my life out when I got back to Canada, but I found a book in 2007 when I was in an airport looking for something new to read, and the book was Wake Up Call, The Political Education of the 9-11 Widow, written by Kristen Breitweiser, whose husband Ron died in the South Tower. And I was surprised as someone who listens to, you know, I listen to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and read the Globe and Mail and other things up in Canada and also can watch, uh, you know, CNN and MSNBC and occasionally Fox. And I mean, just to see what the different news sources are saying and read the New York Times. So I was surprised that after six years, I had heard absolutely nothing of the families that lost loved ones and their efforts to spearhead a drive for an investigation. I'd read obituaries uh, that were reprinted in local papers out in Vancouver, and I knew people read the names on the anniversaries, but I didn't know anything about the, uh, you know, the efforts of the families to make the nation safe and get to the bottom of whatever happens so that no one would ever have to walk in their shoes. And I thought it was an amazing story, and initially I just, you know, opened a, you know, a file folder of, of news articles I began to read uh, based on their website. And, uh, but around 2015, I decided that, you know, whatever I had in my computer, uh, it was important to, to write a, a book about this because as I talk to people from time to time, both in Canada and the United States and relatives of mine, Nobody seemed to know, uh, hardly anyone knew that there was a family steering committee for the 9-11 Independent Commission or that there were, you know, I would say, do you know who Lori Van Auken is or Patty Casazza or Mary Fetchett or uh, Monica Gabrielle or Sally Regenhardt? And, and people would look at me with a blank stare. They didn't know these names. And I thought that the efforts of the family members, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's a very surprising story. Most people, after the, the loss of someone, especially after a loss of a loved one in a, in a political event like this, on September 11th, choose to go out of the spotlight and to, and to grieve in private and heal in private. But here you've got people uh, who were part of you know, hundreds of families that went to Washington, D.C., to speak to members of Congress and Senate and, and interact with people in the White House, and, you know, have the glare of the, of the camera lights, you know, and the tape rolling. And, and it's quite a surprise for people to, uh, to make a choice like that, to, uh, to go into the public spotlight and to share their story before the media. So I think it's an inspiring story, too, of, of what people can do. Um, so that's why I got interested in the story. In the process of, of writing the book, um and, and the research that you did for it, what are some of the things that stand out most to you or that you were the most surprised to learn? Well, I was surprised. Uh, I mean, at the beginning, you've got a dozen people on this family steering committee. Uh, five of them have told the press uh, how they voted in the year 2000, and three of those five voted for the Bush-Cheney ticket. And from what I can read in, in, in Kristen Breitweiser's memoir, Wake Up Call, the families all expected that the, that the investigation would just help them connect the dots and be satisfied that the government story was, you know, added up. 
And, and what they found instead was, was all kinds of, of going about an investigation the way you wouldn't normally want to do. Uh, Lee Hamilton is the co-chair, former congressman, Democrat from Indiana. And as the families got to know him, he was a longtime best friend of uh, Vice President Dick Cheney and Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, had vacations with the Rumsfelds and the Cheneys with you know, with Hamilton and his wife. Uh, he also had been involved in the Iran-Contra um, inquiry and had said that he couldn't believe that Oliver North would ever lie to him and, and never went for the jugular. Uh, he, he liked, you know, softball questions, being folksy. Uh, he had a reputation around Washington, D.C. as someone who never really was interested in pressing hard to, to, to get to the bottom of anything. And You're talking about George that, Bush. Uh, no, Lee Hamilton. Oh, okay. Lee Hamilton, is, he's the co-chair of the 9-11 Commission. Oh, okay, okay. And, and Lee, ha Lee Hamilton didn't want to have any public hearings. He didn't want to have any subpoenas. He didn't want to have people testifying under oath. And that's a very uh, confusing stance for the families who are trying to get a proper investigation so that everyone can learn the lessons of what went wrong to make the nation and the defenses safer. So, you know, that kind of attitude just, you know, really perplexed the families. And I think that, that it, it just dribbled on like that throughout the whole length of the 9-11 Commission. Uh, Philip Zellico, uh, who's the executive director, co-wrote with another staff member an outline for the whole 9-11 uh, Commission report with all the chapter headings and all the subheadings. And uh, at the end of it, uh, all of the chapter headings and subheadings of the 9-11 Commission's published report looked almost identical with the outline he wrote. And numbers of, of and they kept this outline a secret from, from March of 2003 until it got leaked out to other 9-11 Commission staff in the spring of 2004, plus the families. And, and families like Bob McElvain, whose story with his family was featured in the September 2021 Atlantic uh, Monthly, um, talked about how it was crazy to, to have an investigation, but to, to do a write-up of, of what the report will find before you start to investigate it. And so there's, there's a way in which um, they're kind of putting a thumb on the scales about what they want to look at and what they don't want to look at. Avoid, avoid Saudi Arabia, focus on Iraq, and so on. And so the whole, you know, my assumption would be at the beginning would be that the investigation was a serious one. Uh, but when you have things like the, um, you know, the debris from the, the collapsed towers, normally when there's a police investigation or any investigation of a crime, and this is a crime, you have the yellow tape around the, the, the site and you go and get do the forensics and, and look at all of the evidence you can find and do the test to determine as much as you can about what's happened. But what they had done instead was they quickly were shipping out on barges and, and, and freighters around the world to South Korea and the Philippines and China all kinds of uh, debris from the World Trade Center. So they had very few samples left to even look at to, to, to determine what had happened, why the buildings fell. So the families found that 
suspicious and, and problematic. Just not and and Fire Engine Engineering Magazine. Bill Manning was the editor in 2002. He blasted the uh, you know City of New York and the other investigators, and they said, and "This is just not the way you do a proper investigation." And you know, so uh, there are problems like that that that, the fa- that I think were, were surprising for me to learn. And one other thing I'll mention, too, is, you know, I mean, I'm learning about this from scratch, a lot of it. Uh, The families had questions about why four hijacked planes could fly around domestic U.S. airspace with no no, uh, response from the United States Air Force, from the military. And, And so, you know, there's a term called scrambling, where uh, when a plane is is off course, two miles or more, it constitutes a real and present danger to all of the other flights up in the air flying in the opposite direction. And uh, I learned that in 1956, there was the um, mid-air Grand Canyon collision between a commercial flight and a military plane, and 128 people died. And there were two or three other uh, collisions, uh, bad weather or whatever it was, more in the eastern states uh, in the late 50s. And then what was put in place was the forerunner for the, for the Federal Aviation Administration in 1958. And every plane, uh, before they left the departure gate, had to the pilots had to get the okay from the air traffic controllers that they have an approved flight path and an approved altitude because you want people flying safely in the skies. And the general public needed to be assured that they weren't going to end up like the like the, tra- the, the people that, who died over the Grand Canyon. And so uh, the families learned that there have been maybe, you know, over 10,000 uh, instances where planes were intercepted. I read a general accounting report in 1993 covering the 1989, 90, 91, and 92 uh, uh, costing of uh, every time you send a, a, a fighter jet up in the sky, it costs the American taxpayer money. And so there are over 1,500 cases where uh, fighter jets were sent up in between 89 and 1992 to intercept uh, planes that were off course for some reason or other. And, and so the families were saying, you know, how come we have this military precision where our fighter pilots that are trained, you know, half a dozen times a month all the time and are uh, meeting any flight off course with military precision to bring it down to the nearest runway to find out what's gone wrong, how come we're zero for four on September 11th? It just didn't make sense to them. It didn't make sense to some of the families who lost loved ones who were military families. Ray, uh, tell me about the fourth plane, because I seldom hear that talked about. Yeah, there's, yeah the fourth plane, uh, which I don't end up writing about, much in my book, uh, but the, the plane that went to, to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, uh, that plane, um, there, there's, there's some confusion, it seems. I mean, numbers of different uh, uh, reports by, offered up by NORAD, uh, did, the, did, the, did the plane crash at 10.03, did it crash at 10.06? Uh, you know, no agreement about about the timeline. But there's there's some controversy about about what happened when the plane crashed into the ground. Um, 
what debris was there to be found. Um, so it, it just there's there's just some confusion on the part of families uh, that not quite sure what what all happened there, and um, so it ends up being one of I guess what the family members call kind of one of the myriad oddities of of what happened. Yeah, so it's it's uh, it's <laughs> it's just, they'd like a more thorough investigation of what happened there. Well, I messed up on my math a little bit there, Ray, because I I had, for some reason, it just wasn't registering in my head that there were two planes that hit the towers. Yeah. yeah. And I thought you two were saying... Yeah, I, the two planes hit the towers. There was a third plane that hit the Pentagon and the fourth plane in, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. In in the process of, of putting together this book, um, you... Basically, in essence, you get all of the questions that September 11th families submitted, and then you review all the material that was released and match them up or attempt to match them up. Is that a fair description of the book? Yeah, well, what I I actually did, I mean, it's a generous description. The families asked hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions that they thought would be the best questions after they read several thousands of news, mainstream news articles. They said these are the best questions to ask the president, the vice president, Secretary of Defense, Condoleezza Rice with NASA's you know, security and, and other, you know, Richard Clark and, and the CIA and the FBI and the Department of Defense and so on. And so I had only, you know, my 450-odd pages. I just tackled about a dozen of the questions. I'd have to write a whole series, which I'm not going to do. But, <laughs> but I thought, you know, you, know, there, there's, you know, here is a sample of some of the questions the families have asked. And, and uh, Sarah Van Auken, whose father, Kenneth Van Auken, died in the North Tower, said she put on a play called, this was not about 9-11, but asking some some questions and she says one of the best ways to honor those who died is, is to take the family's questions seriously and so yeah so i just tackled a dozen of the questions and i gave a, a sample of about 10 others in an appendix for people to to look at uh but i think it's it's uh you know it you know people like um patty casaza's husband uh, john died in the north tower she's a nursing student I mean, a lot of these people, there were a few people like Kristen Breitweiser who had studied law, but a lot of the people who were, who went to Washington, D.C., you know, Mary Fetchett, whose son Brad died in the South Tower, she hadn't been involved in politics in any way before. You know, I, didn't even, I don't even know that all 12 of the Family Steering Committee members, uh, you know, who, who went to Washington, D.C., even all voted for in the 2000 election, not all Americans do. But this galvanized them to try and, you know, make a difference. Uh, so I think it's, it's a very important piece to understand that uh, in terms of our history, that not only did the families uh, grieve and, and many were, you know, resilient and moved on with their lives. And people like Mary Fetchett and Carol Ashley and, and Beverly Eckert were involved in Voices of September 11th and, and people trying to, you know, archive uh, stories about the family members who died. 
But there are, you know, this this piece about what the families did to go to Washington D.C. is, you know, it's historical and it's uh, it's a factual, uh, you know, effort of of uh, what the the uh, 9/11 Commission co-chairs Tom Keene and Lee Hamilton referred to as one of the best examples of citizen democracy and grassroots advocacy in many many generations, and I think it's a story that most people don't know. Ray, what's next for you? Well, Tom, I've got a, I've got five more interviews this week. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, of course yeah. you'll be promoting the book, but but is there yeah. another book in the works? Not not right now. I mean, I you know, I mean, I I, I do I have a totally whimsical website on on pop music about the songs that were big hits in Vancouver that didn't do so well in the USA. I'm not sure if I'm going to turn that into a book though. But I think that what I might do, what I might do though, uh, is just like, you know, this for me, this story of the the, the book I wrote was a, was something that just seemed to be like an elephant in the room, something that should be written more about. I mean, Kristen Brightwiser had her memoir, but there's very little, little out there uh, in a book form discussing the family steering committee, and so I will continue to be watchful of, you know, the news I follow and, and the society at large. And if something else comes along that I think other people aren't really addressing, I'll, get, I'll put pen to paper and write something new, and you'll be the first to hear about it. Well, Ray, thank you so much for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning, and, and I appreciate it because I know you had to get up very early to do this. Um, but... I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, the book, and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website, Ray? Yeah, uh, sure. The website is www.unanswerequestions.ca, DA like California, uh, and uh, Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked the 9-11 Commission Ignored is a book that can be purchased on ebook on Amazon, and you can get it there also on hardcover or paperback, as well as Barnes and Noble and any other local bookstore you want to support. And uh, yeah, that's what uh, what yeah unanswered questions. Well, Ray, thanks again, and keep up the good work. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure, Tom. Take care. Take care. As author uh, Ray McGinnis, the book is Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Wash my hands. I don't touch my face I stay at home Shelter in place Social distance Don't go to work I wear a mask and gloves I stay away from church I avoid old folks and should I sneeze, I do it in my elbow or up my 
kids can go back to school I'm washing my hands Like a raccoon with OCD I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC I've taken down all my mirrors And I'm sick of what I see of quarantine will be the death of me the death of me I risk a trip to the grocery store to buy a TV and a few things more but when I get there all I can find Sixteen honey buns and some mad dog wine. I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD. I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down all my mirrors, cause I'm sick of what I see. So this quarantine's gonna be the death of me. The death of me. You know, they say this is war. But we don't have to storm Omaha Beach or Pork Chop Hill. And we just lay here on the couch and watch TV. Whew, I'd rather volunteer for a high-risk commando raid to parachute into Wuhan and find that little fellow that ordered that bad soup. I know I'm talking out of my head, saying crazy stuff over and over like, yes, dear, yes, dear. At breakfast, I meant to say, honey, please pass me the pepper. Well, what slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. <laughs> of course, I immediately apologized <laughs> as soon as I regained consciousness. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places. So be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. 
Joe Bai from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Jonah Bodie. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. Hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Another five-minute mystery. An anniversary party is going on at the Brown household around the corner. One of the guests, George Taylor, pauses while eating his dessert. Mmm, best lemon pie I've ever tasted, Mary. Oh, really? I wish my wife could do as well. Hey, it doesn't look as if Sam is appreciating it much, though. Goodness, dear, is my cooking that bad? Sam, your head is practically in your plate. I guess he's fallen asleep, everyone. I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Sam, Sam, sit up. Sam, it's dreadful. 
I'd better shake him. Sam! Sam! Great guns, he's dead. How do you do? I'm Sergeant Barker of the Homicide Division, and this is one of my boys, Mike Grady. Where's the body? In the dining room at the table. We didn't move him. Hmm. Might as well be comfortable, everybody. This will take just a little while. Hmm. Dead, all right. Peaceful, too. Who's Mrs. Sam Brown? I am. You mind telling me what happened? I guess not. I'm so shocked. I don't know where to begin or what to tell you. Well, you might as well begin by telling me what you served for dinner. Well, uh, we had soup first. Soup? What kind? Mushroom. And then roast chicken, green peas, mashed potatoes, and I served him coffee. But I don't see how this could mean anything. Just routine, Mrs. Brown. Did Mr. Brown eat everything? Yes, yes he did. He seemed to fall asleep over his coffee. Mm Mm-hmm. And when I tried to wake him, I found he's had a heart attack. Yeah, that'll be all for a few minutes, Mrs. Brown. We want to take a look around. Uh, notice anything about this table, Mike? No, Chief. Can't say as I do. Neither do I. Let's look in this kitchen. An orderly person, isn't she? Stacked dishes after each course. Yes, and here's the silverware over here. Ah, look. Look, Chief. One of these soup spoons has turned black. Black? Let me see it. The only spoon that's tarnished, too. Well, I was beginning to think it was a heart attack or the perfect murder. But this silver soup spoon is evidence enough. Uh, Mrs. Brown? Yes, Sergeant Barker? I'm sorry to interrupt your little party, Mrs. Brown, but I'm sure your guests won't mind. Uh, I don't understand. You will, Mrs. Brown, you will. You see, you're under arrest for the murder of your husband. Do you know why Sergeant Barker accused Mrs. Brown of murder? In a moment, we'll hear the solution. And now, back to our story. Sergeant Barker, how do you know it was homicide? Well, Mrs. Brown took careful pains to wash the soup pans and soup dishes before she served the rest of the meal. Yeah, I can see that. But she forgot one thing, to wash the silver soup spoons. What she didn't realize was that an hour later, by the end of dinner, the spoon her husband had used to eat his toadstool soup would give her away. She didn't know that toadstools make silver turn black. Mrs. Brown almost committed the perfect murder. But she forgot to wash one spoon. This five-minute mystery featured the voices of Sean Cantwell, Rhonda Groves Young, Randy Zimmerman, and yours truly, Tom Sumner. We hope you've enjoyed this mini-mystery.
many seas Must a white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand How many times must a cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned For the answer, my friend It's blowing in the wind I mean that answer Is blowing in the wind How many times Must a man look up Before he can see sky How many ears Must one man have Before he can hear How many deaths, how many deaths will it take till he knows that too many people have died? Ah, the answer, my friend, is blowing, blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing. exist before it is washed to the sea How many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free How many times can a man turn his head Pretending, pretending, pretending he just doesn't see Oh, the answer, my friend It's blowing, blowing in the wind The answer is blowing it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program that was uh, Eddie Albert was our Schlocktober pick of the day 
And uh, I want to say thanks to uh, all of the guests that were on the show today, starting with uh, this past hour with uh, Ray McGinnis, author of Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. And a fascinating conversation to start the day off with uh, Dr. Frank Romano, a... um, Uh, Let's see, what is he, a tenured professor at the uh, University of Paris, and uh, talking about his book, um, which is in its fifth edition, to include a new chapter based on his uh, recent experience uh, being imprisoned, uh, released, and hiding out, um, Love and Terror in the Middle East. But I want to apologize to uh, Jane Jones Beeler, who was my guest in the uh, in the middle, in the second hour. I had a little internet glitch, and that cut our conversation short. But uh, fascinating. Um, Jane uh, Jane's love for hockey and um, her book series for children, Drop the Puck, which just came out... Uh, in its most recent form a couple of weeks ago um, celebrating uh, sports-loving children of all types and abilities. Anyway, there's Smoke and George Winters tickling the ivories. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room, but I'll be back tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. to produce another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. Don't forget you can listen to the show all day. Uh, It repeats over and over uh, until the next new show on our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.